0: Hey. Good morning, church. Good morning. Great to be with you guys again. Um, before I get into it, I just need to say I've got some friends that spend the summers in, um, in Wisconsin. So to them this morning, I just want to say, sons and four. <laughs> <laughs> sons and four. I want to thank Pastor Hudson for bringing the word last week. Our youth pastor did an amazing job. And I also want to encourage you, please, please, please stop by the mobile kitchen, take a tour, check it out, meet Josh. The reason why I want you guys to see that and experience it is because you made it possible, right? And I want you guys to see what you made possible. In the first service, we had a bunch of guys from Teen Challenge here. Last year as part of our Thrive 2020 campaign, you guys also were generous enough to purchase a bus for Teen Challenge, which they use to do all their ministry. And then they join us uh, every so often here as well. And just like Josh shared, that was a ministry that in partnership with Illuminae has now come full circle to bring him where he's at. And um, I'm just really thankful and humbled by the generosity of this church we may be young in age but we are mature in our giftedness and in our generosity and so literally um you know on behalf of the the thousands of people homeless people that will be fed in the name of jesus thank you for that thank you for that so this morning we're in acts chapter 14. if you've got your bibles you can head there as i was studying this week uh, It just occurred to me how amazing it is that we are all here, that we're gathered together. And by we, I mean tens of millions of Christians all over the world. Christianity is still the world's largest... Uh, Religion, If you can call it a religion, we refer to it more specifically as a relationship. Jesus didn't come to start a religion. He came to restore the relationship that men and women have with their creator, God. We're all born into a dysfunctional relationship. That's what the Bible calls sin. We all have this overwhelming tendency to serve ourselves and put ourselves on the throne and just take God off that throne. And that's why the world is so jacked up. Jesus came to set all that stuff right. But how did we get here? Uh, What what made this all possible? Well, there was an ignition spark without a doubt. We've said many times throughout our study in the book of Acts. There's no way Christianity gets off the ground. It does not exist without the resurrection of Jesus. Something happened that turned the world upside down for the small fledgling group who believed in Jesus, but they weren't completely convinced that he was all he said he claimed to be until the resurrection happened. Then they were like, game on. We can't deny this. He's making... Post-resurrection appearances, people are being drawn. That message is being spread. Uh, And then there's resistance. We are here because of the sweat, tears, and literal blood of first, second century believers, men and women who have come before us. Men and women represented by someone like the Bishop Polycarp, who February 23rd, 155 A.D., was told by the Roman authorities, declare Caesar as Lord. Declare Caesar as God. Declare Caesar as King. Declare Caesar as the one sent from the gods to humanity to rule over us in benevolence. By the way, it's, it's really important to understand the religious climate in which Christianity burst forth in the first century AD. I'll explain more about that in a second. But Polycarp refused to give in. For him, there was only one master, only one Lord, only one king, and that's the man who came back from the dead, Jesus. So they bound him and lit the fires underneath him. The historian Eusebius then goes on to tell us of his final words consisting in the form of a prayer. He said, I bless you, God, for considering me worthy of this day and hour, that I might receive a portion in the number of the martyrs. Isn't it interesting? We think of thanking God for a lot of blessings in life. How about the blessing of being counted as a martyr? In the cup of Christ, unto resurrection of eternal life, both of the soul and of body, In the immortality of the Holy Spirit, among these may I be received before you on this day in a rich and acceptable sacrifice as you, the faithful and true God, did beforehand prepare and you revealed and you have now fulfilled. Wherefore, I praise you also for everything. I bless you, I glorify you through the eternal high priest, Jesus Christ, your beloved son, through whom, with whom in the Holy Spirit be glory unto you both now and for the ages to come. Amen. And as the fires began to grow... He was heard singing hymns. The first 200 years of church history are filled with these stories. As we've worked our way through the book of Acts, we've seen a man named Stephen stoned to death for his faith in Jesus. Last week we read about James, the brother of John, who was run through with the sword, or beheaded with the sword. In some way, he was killed by the sword. I, uh, I recognize that for many in the Christian community at this time, it would have been an absolute shock, right? It's like for a while early on, things were going really well. But then this resistance comes, Christians are dying and the message is being sent loud and clear. It's no longer acceptable for you to be a follower of Jesus Christ. See Stephen. See James. And so you would think perhaps that most would recoil and certainly I'm sure that perhaps some Christians did, but many did not. They were not living in fear, but they lived in faith. And Christianity began to spread frankly, like never before. Now, I recognize that the text that we're going to read this morning perhaps means much more to our brothers and sisters who are living in places like Pakistan, Nigeria, China, North Korea. By the way, pray for the church in South Korea. God's doing something amazing there. The population of South Korea obviously far smaller than the population of the United States but they are on their way to sending forth more missionaries from North Korea out into the world than what we send from the United States. God is doing something in South Korea. Some of those missionaries are actually entering North Korea. In Iran, there's a pastor who preaches from his prison cell and the congregation gathers outside the prison wall and the numbers are growing for now. Isn't it interesting? Uh, there is a concern on the part of Christians living in different parts of the country or excuse me, of the world and their concern isn't so much for the church where they're located as they're experiencing uh, quite a bit of growth their concern is for the church in the west their concern and their prayers are for the church in America it has been said and I think rightly so that in an absence of persecution, real persecution, complacency and apathy begins to set in. C.S. Lewis has written a fascinating little book, more like a fable, perhaps you're familiar with it. It's called The Screwtape Letters. It's the story of an older, more seasoned demon, and he's mentoring a younger demon who's new in the art of deceiving Christians. And as he's mentoring him, he writes these words Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, and without signposts. In other words, what he's saying is that if you can get a Christian to live his or her life in a comfort zone, in a bubble, Free from any kind of persecution, then you will anesthetize him or her. And in so doing, you will make that person essentially incapacitated and unable to advance the things of God. Uh, They will not understand what is the high and oftentimes dangerous calling of being a disciple of Jesus Christ. And so for the early Christians, there, there was no soft underfoot, there was no gentle slope, there were signposts and the signposts read death. So let's review where we're at in the story. The church at large is about 10 to 15 years old. The church in Antioch already is sending forth missionaries out into the world. Two pastors, Paul and Barnabas, they make a 1400 mile journey. They're preaching the gospel. They're seeing Gentiles and Jews come to faith in Christ. We've been saying this every week and it cannot be understated. It can't be said enough. There's nothing like, nor has there ever, there never will be anything like biblical Christianity to unite people. Two very different groups, hostile with each other Jews, Gentiles, now living under the same roof, calling each other brothers and sisters and sharing together. The world had never seen anything like it. Nothing unites like Jesus Christ. There wasn't another word to describe it. In Antioch, they were first called Christians. They were identified first and foremost by the gospel of Jesus Christ, not their skin color not their race, not their ethnicity, not their gender, not their sexual preference. The gospel within the Christian community transcended all of those things, and that's what united them together. These churches are being planted, people coming to faith in Christ. Paul and Barnabas enter the city of Lystra. They're preaching, and they encounter a man who he hasn't been able to walk his entire life and Paul heals him and the crowd takes notice and the crowd is out are out of their minds when they experience this and they immediately begin to think oh, the Greek gods are visiting us in human form and they begin worshiping Paul and Zeus they call Paul Hermes which is the Greek god of knowledge Barnabas they call Zeus they start making sacrifices to the guys and Paul and Barnabas are out of their minds they're like, no, 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 what you are you doing? And they're ripping, they're tearing their clothes. It's a really intense moment. And they explain, this is all God's work, the God who created everything, the God who gave us his son, Jesus Christ, out of his great love for us. This is the God that's at work here. It has nothing to do with us. They totally shunned popularity and fame. And it's like, don't put the spotlight on us. Put it on Jesus. There's a reason why we don't live for the favor of man because the favor of man is so fickle. Cancel culture was around way before our time. Jesus rides into town on a donkey that first day of the Passion Week, and the crowds are like, Hosanna, which literally means, save us. Our Savior is here. By the end of the week, those same people have canceled Jesus, even his own. Crucify him. So the crowd wants to deify Paul and Barnabas, and in the next moment, that same crowd wants them dead because here's what happens, chapter 14, verse 19, but Jews, religious Zealots came from Antioch and Iconium and having persuaded the crowds, people can be so easily persuaded, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. So these Jew- Jewish zealots show up. They-, they start spreading this misinformation. Within the Jewish community, they're saying, hey, these guys are preaching... uh, that Jesus is the Messiah and that's going to undo our Judaism so we need to get rid of these guys and the crowds are persuaded and they want Paul dead now there's a different form of persuasion that's used against the Romans because the Romans will turn against Paul and Barnabas and we'll talk more about that in a second but first I want you to think about what Paul is experiencing here imagine I don't know if you've ever had an angry mob come at you what is Paul thinking is this it Is this my time? There's a sense that Paul understands by this point in his ministry, the man of God, the woman of God doing the will of God is invincible until God calls him or her home. Is this my time? We don't know what he was thinking, but we do know that this beat-down lifestyle would uh, become Paul's everyday occurrence. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he's writing to a church, and it's super jacked up. It's a very dysfunctional church. And the reason why it's dysfunctional is because they're listening to every form of teaching that comes essentially into the city. And so they're having these people preach a gospel that's different than the gospel that Paul brought. And then people kind of side-eye Paul, like, we don't know if you're, you're, you're bringing the right message, Paul. Well, Paul was the one like founded the church. And now there's people in the church that are like, no, yeah, we're not so high on Paul anymore. We like this other guy because this other guy tells us what we want to hear. The Bible talks about that. In the last days, people are going to want their ears tickled, so they're going to want to receive a message that makes them feel good. So that was happening in this congregation, and they're being led astray. In fact, at one point, Paul says, look, there's a guy in the congregation that's having an illicit relationship with his stepmom, and you all are like, Aren't we awesome? We are such an open and tolerant and accepting church. And Paul says, no, you're wrong. You're wrong. You're listening to the wrong voices and it's not serving you well. The trajectory of this behavior, it's not gonna end well for you. And so they tune out the voice of Paul. And so Paul says, okay, can I just remind, let me just lay down some of my street cred for you, all right? I have what they don't. Now, Paul sometimes uses sarcasm if you're under 40, let's say this, if you're under 50 years old, don't try this. Don't use sarcasm, okay? You're going to get it wrong. But sarcasm, used correctly, it can, be a, a, it can be a helpful device in pointing out the ridiculousness of one's belief or position. And so that's what Paul does in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. He says, okay, are these people that you're listening to, are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. And then he says, I'm talking like a madman. I've been in far greater labors. I've been in prison far more than they have. Countless beatings I've had, often near death, five times, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one, right? The idea is that at 40, they were going for death. Five times 39, okay? Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned, that's the time that we just read here in Lystra, to look at Paul's body would be to look at the scars and disfigurement of one who was totally sold out for Christ and yeah it, it raises this simple but profound point that many of us we don't want to hear but our text makes it plain. You ready for it? And many of you have experienced this there is more suffering in the Christian life than you ever thought you could handle At the same time, there is more joy than you thought was ever possible. Say, how do those two coexist? Paul was on the front lines, and as he experienced the beatdown, he also experienced the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, transforming lives, transforming cultures. At one point, Paul will be considered a person who turns the world upside down. Turns the world upside down. That, that, I mean, man, what a, that's my prayer for our own community, that we would be known this way. He's in rough shape. They drag him out of the city. They leave him there for dead. By the way, that's an important point in the text. What's being emphasized there is their deep disrespect for Paul because for a Jewish man to, 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 have his, to not have his body buried, that, that was... Um, yeah, it was, it was just like the worst, it was like spitting on your grave. It was like showing you disrespect even in your death to not give you the dignity of burying your body. So they leave him, they think he's dead. God would spare him, verse 20. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. The guy's a gospel beast. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derby. Now it's really cool because because of, because of Paul's ministry, his influence, there were actually disciples already in this city and they took care of him. Now, how would you describe this type of Christian? The one who suffers for his or her beliefs, believing that Christianity is true, it is right, believing that Jesus is all that he said he was, including there is no other way to God but through him. Our culture, in many ways, like the culture back then, they did not like the idea of exclusivity. To say that Jesus is the only way to God, that offends our postmodern sensibilities. We cannot all be right. The law of non-contradiction tells us we can't all be right. Either Jesus is right or my Hindu friends are wrong. My Muslim friends are wrong, right? We can't all be right. We're not all saying the same things. So how do we know we're right? I was talking with a young man after the first service about this. I'll tell you how you know, Christian. Resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the exclamation mark. If you come back from the dead, and by the way, if you're open-minded, open-hearted, the evidence surrounding the resurrection is incredibly persuasive. I would say overwhelming. In fact, I would go so far as to say I have to be a Christian because of the evidences surrounding the resurrection, period. Now, you can be exposed to those and you can deny it. That's on you, right? But if you're open-minded and open-hearted, there are these certain imponderables that you have to deal with. So that's when Christianity, only in Christianity you have this ignition spark. Again, there is no Christianity without the resurrection. We would not be here without it. So these early believers, they gave their lives for it, uh, believing in the gospel. Now, I want to take just a moment, and I want to go back to what I said earlier. It's crucial that you understand the religious climate in which Christianity bursts forth. In the first and second century AD, historians now tell us that the largest religion consisted of and was known as the worship of Caesar. Isn't that interesting? The worship of Caesar. In fact, there have been temples unearthed that are dedicated solely for the purpose of worshiping the emperor. They deified him. This is why in 155 AD, Polycarp was told, you better start saying Caesar is king you better start declaring him a deity. In fact, some historians say that the reason why Rome conquered most of the known world at that time is because of this cult of Caesar, this worship of Caesar. In other words, you don't need a military to enforce what Caesar wants when you have everybody already believing that he is a god sent to earth for your benevolent dictatorship. You do what the emperor wants, because he is a god from on high. A gift. So if you have the population believing this, it's easy to rule them. In fact, there are government buildings with inscriptions on the side that talk about Caesar as God, but they also include another very interesting And very important description. In fact, if you don't understand the role of the worship of Caesar in the first century, you actually won't completely understand how influential the gospel message is in the first century. I'll show it to you. This is a, uh, I'll read you an inscription carved into the side of a government building. This speaks of Caesar Augustus who reigned during the uh, Roman Empire at the time of Jesus. Here's what the inscription says. Since providence, which has ordered all things and is deeply interested in our lives, has set in most perfect order by giving us Augustus, whom she filled with virtue, that he might benefit humankind, sending him as our savior, both for us and for our descendants, and that he he might end all war and arrange all things, and since he, Caesar, by his appearance Excelled even in our anticipations. I mean, they're really putting it on thick here. Like Caesar was, not only is he this godly form, but he was so good looking, surpassed all previous benefactors and not even leaving to posterity any hope of surpassing what he has done. He's that great. And since the birthday of the god Augustus was the beginning of the, in the Greek word is evangelio which is the English word gospel. The God Augustus was the beginning of the gospel for the world. Paul was not inventing the word gospel. It was a word used in the culture, but applied to Caesar. And so now Paul comes on the scene and he says, let me tell you about Evangelio. Oh, there's a different evangelio. It does not have Caesar at the center, I can tell you that. It has Jesus at the center. So he takes this word that has this person and reinterprets it and says, no, it's not about this person, it's about this one. Gospel meaning good news. Ultimately, the good news was not brought by Caesar. Okay, that is inflammatory and that is blasphemous. The good news was brought by Jesus. Caesar is not the center of worship, Jesus is. Caesar is not the true king, Jesus is. So Paul's gospel is a direct challenge to the gospel of Rome. And it is in this sense that Paul, don't carry this too far, some of you I know, Paul is getting quite political, but in the proper way. We all know people don't care about politics. So this doesn't go unnoticed. Uh, After all, this is the reason why Paul gets run out of town. Chapter 17, verses 6 through 8. These men who have turned the world upside down. These men, from obscurity and nowhere, they are turning the world upside down. Now they've come here also and Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar. See that? Saying that there is another king, Jesus. They're preaching another gospel. And the people in the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. How dare they? How dare they not worship Caesar? How dare they speak against the gospel of Caesar? Now, Paul is always looking for teachable moments. Some disciples pick up his body. He's in rough shape. They nurse his wounds, and he's back in the game, back in the same city. Making disciples. Teachable moment, verse 21. When they had preached the gospel to that city and they'd made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith. Now, you want some encouragement this morning, Christian? You want some encouragement this morning? How's this? Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Oh, you're like, I'm not sure that's the encouragement I wanted. But this is the encouragement you actually need. Do you see what he's doing? They're preparing believers for a life of hardship because their loyalty is to a different king. Their loyalty is to a different place. Obedience to the king will set you at odds with the culture it's a different gospel. It's the true gospel. And, and what he's saying is, if you are proclaiming the gospel of Jesus, understand that the larger culture in which you live, they will view you as a subversive group. Is that interesting? There's nothing new under the sun. However, from the standpoint of God, he says, you are setting your face toward his kingdom. It's, it's absolutely incre- incredible. We have Christians listening from uh, all over the world, different parts of the world. That's the beauty of the internet, the good thing about it, the redeeming part of it. Christian, when you are being scorned, rejected, ridiculed, despised, shamed, know that you are in great company. Not only are you advancing the kingdom of God here and now, but you think about what awaits you, the fullness of the kingdom of God in the life to come. We have brothers and sisters experiencing harsh persecution in faraway places, uh, like I mentioned earlier, and you know what they pray for? They pray for us. They pray for the church in the West, that we would catch fire. N.T. Wright is a New Testament scholar, and he describes Christians living in America in this way. He says, it's as if many are living separate upstairs and downstairs lives. There is the upstairs life of spirituality where we allow ourselves to be concerned with attending church on Sunday, listening to the Bible being taught, singing. But then there's this downstairs life where we actually spend most of our time making money, pursuing it, thinking about how to spend it, what to acquire. Collecting awards and accolades, fame, likes. Pursuing lustful pleasures. Not really thinking much about looking for new creation in ourselves and in this world. By new creation, what he's referring to is what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians five seventeen. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold the new has come, and so we are to ask ourselves, where is the new creation around us? Where is the new creation, not only within us, but through, it, through us? So i got some questions for us to wrestle with this week. You know how it works. I've had to wrestle with it myself. Now it's your turn. How is the gospel of Jesus Christ reflected in your life, and how is it not? Are you becoming a new creation? How has the gospel affected the way you think and feel about yourself and your place in the world around you? Does the gospel of Jesus give you your identity? How is the gospel of Jesus Christ working through me, not just in me, but through me? What difference does my faith make in this world? When I was a junior in high school, my friend Kathy Capel ran for student body president, a very strong believer, sweetest girl. She was just like Jesus personified in a high school girl. It's possible. And when she gave her speech, right, kind of her vote for me speech, she literally said, a vote for me is a vote for Jesus Christ because I'm a Christian. And she went on and gave her beautiful testimony and she kind of had a rough start in life. And she got mocked. This is in front of her peers. She got mocked by some, a few, but not many. And I'm watching this and I'm realizing because of the way Kathy lived her life as a 17, 18-year-old girl, people had experienced her kindness and her warmth, her care, her love, her compassion, her concern. She was Jesus in the flesh. And what, this is what's really cool. It's like, it's like what happens, you know, it's, it's like when, when, a, when an average looking guy attracts a, a really beautiful Christian woman. You know, you know how that's made possible? This is, let me just let you in on a secret sauce of something here for, for the single guys in the room. Mimic the life of Jesus, and what happens is the girl falls in love with Jesus through you. And that becomes very attractive. And so because of the way Kathy lived her life, people had experienced her goodness. And so while a lot of students would be like, I'm not down with what her story is or what she believes, but I really like her because of who she represents was not just in her it was through her so you know we have a lot to think about you know as we leave this morning because as you leave you really are you are entering the mission field and so as we stand on the shoulders of those who have gone before us this is our time this is our moment I'm so humbled by what God has done in such a short time through this community But I believe the best is yet to come But I want to encourage you Through many trials and tribulations we will enter the kingdom of God God you are the ultimate reality Lord no doubt there are people in the room that are struggling are wrestling God, life is hard. Life is always taking things away from us. But, Father, you are there to provide what we need when every crutch is removed. Lord, as we receive the good words of your scripture again, Lord, may we meditate. May they sink deeply within us so that we can continue expanding the kingdom through the hardships, through the difficulties, and yet at the same time, experiencing the joys of opening up our lives to you and seeing your work on display. We're so thankful for the life of Josh, for the encouragement that he is. God, your hand of blessing on him. It's not his ministry. It's our ministry together. And it's all done so that the name of Jesus can be made known, that people can be drawn to him. Because that is the true gospel. There is only one king. There is only one throne, God. You sit upon it. Father, all we say, do, and think. Lord, may it be under your hand of blessing. We ask it in the name of the one who makes it all possible. His name is Jesus Christ and God's people said, amen.